Hey everybody, Jason Klom here. Thank you so much for joining us. Apologies for uh, several delays. I think I mentioned this previously, but um, lost a ton of episodes uh, in a bit of a hardware issue and have yet to recover them. And uh, that said, this is the one of the uh, five interviews uh, in which I actually have the important half left over. Uh, not to diminish my importance as an interviewer. Uh, anyway, that was a that was meant to be a snore, but it ended up sounding like a snort, and I thought it was really really funny. I don't think I'm that funny. Neither do you at this point. Uh, long story short, thank you so much for all that. There's there's a whole bunch of wonderful construction going on next door. Now I'm a real podcast. And uh, anyway, long story short, this is with the amazing and fun Dick Gutman. He is a press agent, as he calls himself. That is the term that he uses. He does not say publicist. He's been doing it for a long time, and he's uh, done this for some amazing people. And uh, so he's every right to call it whatever he wants. And uh, there's some really fun stories on here. You can hear me in the background. That's fine. Uh, you know, the the questions are 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 fine. They're <laughs> I think, again, I think I, I, I'm in the distance, but not so super far in the distance you can't uh, understand what he's answering. Uh, and he's very clear anyway. Um, lots of super fun stuff. So um, that is about it. I will, I just want to, uh, real quick before I go, make sure to remind you uh, to not just go to stolendress.com slash celery sound to check out my sketch comedy record label. We're working on getting our first vinyl releases together and everything. Uh, working on some other stuff that might come out within literally two weeks. Uh, not on vinyl, but some other stuff that'll be on vinyl. And definitely check out uh, a gift you didn't ask for from friends you never had. Um, it's a wonderful album released only on vinyl. I did not even push them to release it digitally. Uh, they released it on, uh, on their own on vinyl at first, and then I wanted to distribute it. It's really, it's wonderful. It's like modern day fire sign theater. Um, I know it's weird to put a promotion up top, but it's almost Christmas time. And why not show some love to these artists? These guys are wonderful. They did this out of the goodness of their hearts and the desire to make some very weird fire sign-esque comedy. Uh, it's, it's a friggin' delight. Um, so check that out. And now without further ado, did I say further right? I don't think I did. Mr. Dick Gutman. I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Welcome to the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. This week we are not talking about one particular album, but we are talking with Dick Gutman. Thank you so much for doing the show. Well, it's it's my privilege, but it's also my area of interest, because oh, I, I had a great decade mm -hmm. working with those people. Yeah. Well, because I, I, I first emailed you asking about one of your clients. They were yeah. unavailable. And then I'm like, hold on, I know the man's name, and I had to look you up and do a little more research, and I'm like, there's no reason to not have you on the show. Good. So, so for, from the era that of, of the greatest comedy albums, what are some of the people that you worked with? Well, I was... I, 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 I don't want to be possessive about them all, because sure. most of those people, at that time I was working for a company called Rogers & Cowan. Mm -hmm. Rogers & Cowan was the biggest publicity firm that there ever will be. I mean, they... They, it was a, a man named Henry Rogers started in the 30s, and Warren Cowan, who is really sort of the king, and the, he's the George Washington of, uh, of publicity. And Warren joined him at the beginning of the 50s, or just when he got out of the Air Force. And, and what was happening then was that the studio system was coming apart. Hollywood had been run by 
the studios, and they all each one had their retinue of stars, and they developed their stars, including a lot of the comedy stars, and um, and they were the studio system that was starting to end, and so these people who had been publicized by the studio publicity department. Uh, which you know created such fanciful things for them and had nothing to do with who they were. Um, they suddenly had to get their own PR, yeah. and so Rogers and Gunn was just it. And you know M- MGM advertised more stars than there are in the heavens. If you have somewhere here, we have that photo with all the great stars, uh-huh. most of whom I handled actually. Uh-huh. And um, and I look at it and I think. Rogers and Con was twice as big as they were, five times as big as they were. We handled everybody. So at that time, we were we were involved with um, no the the Mort Sauls and the um, um, who was it that I'm most focused on? But Bob Newhart really started it, and he he was he was only for a moment handled there, but. Um, These were people who I I worked with Milton Berle. I don't think Milton did albums, though. Right, yeah, no, I don't. don't That's a really amazing thing. Well, Milton was, it it was a shame, but you know, I can understand why he wouldn't because he related so strongly to the audience, to an audience of one, he related. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was bringing my wife, I married my wife in Germany. in Europe in uh, 57 mm-hmm. and brought her to the United States. She was German. <clears throat> so we're coming across the United States. We had like 140 bucks to get us across the United States, mm-hmm. which at that time was money. Sure, sure. And uh, so we get to Vegas and we still have five or 10 bucks mm-hmm. left. So at that time you could go to a, a really good show for a four, $4.58 fruit compote. Right. You can go in and see you know these great shows. So I said, here's Milton Berle. I thought, I'm going to introduce you to America. He was America. You know, he was yeah. the comedy voice of America. So we go in, and he had this very famous act uh, on his television show. Mm-hmm. One of his shticks was he had the Metropolitan Quartet, mm-hmm. the, this, these four great voices, and then he would come in and, and mess up their act. And so... the. I said to my my wife, you know, this is American culture. You're going to be introduced to it. And so out come these four opera people. They're singing. She's happy. This is American culture. It's her culture. Suddenly out comes Milton with his shoes slipping off his feet and the goofball thing. And he starts screwing up the act. And everybody's laughing. And at a certain point, um, she stands up and she says, Will someone please get that man off the stage? <laughs> I'm as startled as anyone. And Milton turns to her. He says, "He says, what's the what's the matter, lady? You got a problem?" And she said, "Yes, you. You're disgusting." And he plays it. He does this big leer. He says, "Why did you hear something good?" She said, "Yes, until you got here." And then she sits down angry, and uh, there's a big applause. And then she goes on, and then. She reaches over and she says, we have to get out of here. I said, why? She says, I didn't know he was a clown. <laughs> I said, that's okay, darling. They, they liked it. She says, we have to leave. And so I said, okay. So she stands up. The audience starts to applaud. They think she's back in the show. So she sits there. And at the end of it, she says, let's just stay, stay here. I don't want to see anyone. And people are coming by saying, hey, sister, you are terrific. <laughs> 
But that was Milton he was of the moment. <clears throat> and I guess that's why he didn't do it, because it, every performance was different. Right, yeah. And, and, and years later, then we handled him, and we went to Vegas with him. And, mm-hmm. um, and so one time I said, you know, I just wonder if you remember the time my wife almost broke up your act. And he says, uh, no. I said, I, I said, how can you not remember it? You were sensational. He said, I'm always sensational. <laughs> He didn't have it. He says, I, I'm always wisecrafting. <laughs> but good. but the the Stan Freebergs, all these people picked it up. Mort Saul didn't like Rogers and Cohen. I don't know why, but he liked me. And Mort was, I thought, a very special guy because he dealt in his own human frailty. Yeah. And um, I still remember one of his lines was... Um, I hate movies. He says, every time there's a crucial moment, they fade out. He says, I don't have any fade outs in my life. I have to live every fucking minute. <laughs> oh, wait, can I say that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was, it was a great philosophy. You know, mm-hmm. It was telling us it's true of all of our lives. We have to live every minute. But uh, it was it was a wonderful thing because Rogers and Warren Cowan just, he was such a magically successful guy mm-hmm. that people came there. They you know, they felt very insecure having suddenly secured their own freedom. They didn't know what to do with it. And um and I remember we would go to the the most arduous thing about that decade for me was when you had to be to hear their album while they're watching you. Mm. It was it was it was a, a challenge to your to your very existence because it was you're under forensic uh, investigation the whole time. So one time Warren was um, Warren and I went over to Stan Freeberg. Stan he was introducing an album called Stan Freeberg Modestly Presents the History of the United States, and uh, and in it he introduced stereophonic sound to through these albums. Yeah. The others, they didn't need it. What was the stereo? You hear the audience. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but here he was acting things out. And so uh, the char- one character's voice may emanate, emanate from the right or the left. And when, he, when he was, we were listening to it, he'd come over to the to right and he'd be mouthing the <laughs> words <laughs> and then he'd go to the left. Well, Warren had a, a really bad habit he would fall asleep in the minute of anything. So we had this, we had this incredible plan that I would sit next to him. And when I saw him start to fall, because you know, a, a comedian does not like to see a closed eyes and he really doesn't like to see two closed eyes. And so when Warren would um, fall asleep and he and Stan wasn't looking at him or whoever it was, um, I let it go. And then when, the person turned to him, I would nudge Warren, and he'd wake up with a burst of laughter. (laughs) And so there was one point where there wasn't anything particularly immediately funny happening, but I was leaning on a a book, and it slipped, and I bumped into Warren's arm, and he woke up with this burst (laughs) of laughter, which had nothing to do with anything on the record. And Stan was really perplexed by that, and then he thought... Well, this man is seeing something so intrinsically funny that he's he's finding laughter there, and and he gave a small applause to Warren for it. Oh my God! 
I mean, that's that's the inherent sort of Okay, Beverly Hills is not burning down. It's just a fire engine. <laughs> that is kind of like the sort of with the insecurity of any comedian comes the, also the desire that maybe somebody else will see the genius even you don't see in your own work, which I, I think is well. The, 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 reliably, they um, they were geniuses. Sure, absolutely. And Stan actually played one of the one of my greatest moments for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was handling Bonnie and Clyde. For, I handled a lot of Warren Collins, of Warren Beatty's films, uh-huh. and so. It was Oscar time, and the only person who hated Bonnie and Clyde was the New York Times reviewer, Bosley Crowther, Mm -hmm. the most important reviewer in the United States. Hated it. He found seven occasions to give it a bad review. He discovered it at the Toronto Film Festival, hated it, it'll go nowhere. And the the successor piled on success, and he kept at it. And so um, the time was, the the awards time, Academy Awards, and at that time the... uh, the Publicist Guild has an award ceremony too, mm-hmm. and they honor the journalist of the year. And there were, so I go over to Warren. I said, "Look, Warren, the, the journalist they're honoring this year is Bosley Crowther. He's leaving the New York Times, and they're giving him this culminating award." And uh, Warren, and Warren said, "They'll never go for it. He was way ahead of me." And I said, "I think they will." And I was suggesting that he would present of the award course, to him. So I go, oh, they go crazy over it. And I said, well, there's no fun if he's on the stage. They'll know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so Stan Freeberg was the MC, and he starts into discuss- discussing that we're presenting the award to, to Bosley Crowther. To present this, we have a young man, and he starts going into this rather towering <laughs> biography of what Warren had accomplished, but not really indicating who it was. And the people in the audience... The, all of the top media in the in, this, in the town come to that event, yeah. and um, everybody sort of what what the hell is this? You know, who is it up there? And um, and I had Warren in the back, of the, not in the auditorium, but in the hallway outside. Wow. At a certain point, I said, "Let's go." And so Warren starts down the right uh, 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 aisle that leads down to the stage, and as he starts down. Some of the people at the back turn over. Here's this tall guy. Who was it? Oh, my God, it's Warren. And it started. It was... The whole room was, was just sort of roaring with anticipation or surprise. And to, they got to the point, and Warren gets up, and it just so happened that Leslie Corona was sitting there with whom he had been romantic. And so he stopped to give her a kiss. Oh, big deal for the audience. And um, he went over at Bosley Crowther is terrified. He thinks that he's been invited to his own hanging. <laughs> and so Warren gets up, and I could hear he was nervous because the response was so big. You could almost hear his knees knocking. And so he starts into an, into this really beautiful appreciation of what Bosley Crowther had truly meant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, forgetting the... And Bosley Crowther's attack on Bonnie and Clyde was one of our chief assets because mm-hmm. it kept showing that he was a jerk and that <laughs> really emphasized how much everybody else loved it. So it was, but Stan played a, I had not talked to him about what he was going to say yeah, yeah. and he brought it, he just built it and yeah. it was in, incredible. It's so funny. I, 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 lo- I love hearing stories of just 
beautifully improv, improvised moments like that. That's and, oh, it was it was the best cool. moment of showmanship I ever created. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the LA, next day the LA Times headline was um, Warren Beatty showmanship brings house down. <laughs> it was really good, but. Watching, the, listening to their albums for the first time with her watching, I took my wife up with me too. I had, Shelley, Shelley Berman was playing the uh, Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. This hall must have been in the late 60s. And another of my clients was Van Johnson, a star that people today, the people who love uh, vinyl probably know and love Van Johnson. He was a great star of the, uh, of the 40s, 50s, 60s. <clears throat> and, and and well into his, the end of his life, mm-hmm. and um, he was a very very sweet person. He was the person that you saw, <laughs> and um, and so we were up there, and I I stopped by at Shelley's at Shelley's apartment at the at the Fairmont with my wife to introduce and say, look, we're looking forward to see the show. He says, well, I have you know I have really the front table for you for both shows. I said, well, Shelley, um, we're going to be at the Midnight Show. I have Van Johnson. He's doing Bye Bye Birdie at the St. Francis. Uh-huh. And so I'll be there first. He says, oh, my God, uh, Van Johnson, the Red Sox, the last time I saw Paris. He is one of the greatest actors. I adore him. He's one of my idols. He says, you don't think, no, I'm sure it's not possible, but maybe. And what what do you think? I said, would he come? I said, you know, he's he's very tired after show, but I'll ask him. I can ask him. And so he said, oh, I know it won't happen, but just in case. So um, I, I I go over to see Van, and uh, and I see. And after the show, um, I I go up to him with this thing, and he says, oh, Kitty, I'm so tired. And I said, Van, I understand that, but Shelley Berman, I think you're. An, He's, you know, a god to him. Sure. The, the Red Sox, the last time I saw Paris. And he says, oh, well, okay, I'll try to do it. So we get, I let Shelley know he's coming. We have table for three underneath. He always sat on the stool, right. underneath his stool. Midnight comes. Shelley's in the wings. We see him in the wings. There is no Van Johnson. He's not going out with any Van, without Van Johnson. Uh, finally, at seven after the... He's pushed out onto the stage. <laughs> he's there. He's looking at her table. He's very distracted by this, but he's a great performer. Sure. And um, he starts into his routine. And it's quarter after Van comes in. So Van sits down there. Now Shelley's floating. He's, you know, he's, he's performing before his God. Everything's great. And so they've come over, complimentary champagne, Mr. Johnson um, takes a sip. He says, oh, I'm afraid that's flat. And um, the waiter is so upset and goes off and Shelley's upset. His God is there and he's been shat upon by (laughs) a a, a flat bottle of champagne. Second bottle comes, it's flat. Shelley is really getting upset now. Not as upset as my wife. Third bottle comes, pour it for Van, start to bring it to his mouth. My wife reaches over, puts her hand on the glass. She said, Van, if this bottle is flat, I'm pouring it over your head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, delicious. That's amazing. (laughs) But it was was a moment that was powered by the kind of neurotic intensity that these comedians had. Sure, sure. I mean, there's got to be... 
this interesting combination of there's always going to be a little bit of hand holding, I'm sure, but also yeah. sounds like you have a ton of admiration for these people you got to work with too. So that's kind of what what's that like for you? What is is it? Do you feel like you're in any way involved in in their work, or do you separate yourself from that completely? Oh, I never flatter myself that I contributed to the work, sure. but uh, yeah, we did really creative things. Well, I you know I, I a couple of years ago I sat down to write. A book about it, Star Flacker. Mm-hmm. Not what you're hearing, F L A C K E R. A flack is a press agent. And that was a word my daughter created for me. But I wanted to put down stories like that. Mm-hmm. And I think the Stan, the Stan Freeberg story is in it too. Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to preserve the golden age, the yeah. golden age, the, the, the vinyl was part of the golden age. Sure. And the golden age was so different from what we have now. Entertain now is very mundane. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not that La La Land wasn't a superior film, but it was. It didn't have the star power of American in Paris. Right. Sure. You know, it was just uh, singing in the rain. Those were great, great world experiences, yeah. and um, and I wanted to put down. What it was I loved. Cary Grant was Cary Grant. You know, when mm-hmm. you're around Cary Grant, you had the same experience that you had on the screen. You watched him and bringing a baby or whatever it was. He was an extraordinary guy. And so I just started writing it down. <clears throat> and by the time I was finished, I had 1,300 pages. And so I knew that wasn't going to fly, so I cut it in half. Uh-huh. And so the book was 680 pages. Mm-hmm. And um, then I discovered they're not, no publisher is going to publish 680 pages unless your name is Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, well, I'm not cutting it down because part of the, what the book is about is how big it was. Sure. You know, yeah. a James Mason was an experience of a lifetime and certainly... Greer Garson and then Gary Gary Cooper, Paul Newman. These were super personalities, and I just couldn't I couldn't hint at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not not a sip. Yeah, it's it's a drink, and so I had to put it out on uh, I self published on Amazon, uh-huh. and lo and behold, it did really well. And um, particularly when there were gigantic pieces of publicity. Uh, um, Robert Osborne called and <clears throat> asked me to be a guest programmer on Turner Classic Movies, which is my you know my favorite thing. We're either watching the cable news or we're watching mm-hmm. Turner Classic Movies, and um, and that next day, the morning that the day before, my book had been number. 958,000th bag was like a million bag. But there are millions of books on the internet, uh, on, the, on, the, on Amazon. And um, the next day at noon, it was number 700. All right. Wow. It, it, it leapfrogged a million books in 12 hours, which is the power of publicity. Yeah. And, but I saw through having relive that experience, mm-hmm. what it meant to me. Yeah. You know, the, the golden age, you know, in those days, and this applies to the comedic stars and, and, the, and the albums. I mean, Bob Newhart created a new kind of way of looking at life. Yeah. He had this piquant 
he looked at it from like eight degrees off. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and it let you see the world differently. And that's what the movies did. And they, and, and, the, and the comedians, and they, they created how we wanted to live our own lives. I mean, Cary Grant, we all aspired to the charm that he had. Sure. And it was real. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was, he wasn't born to it. He had a very tragic childhood, and he created this, this effervescent charm. And we all aspired to that. So it added, for those few moments of her life that we were at Cary Grant, we felt good. Sure. Gary Cooper was the guy that was so straightforward and honest that you knew you, his word was gold. Mm-hmm. And, and he taught us things about what we should aspire to as being decent dependable people and each one of them I mean my, my very favorite was Greer Garson because she had class beyond actually one of the greatest moments of my life my my mother never understood what I did because I didn't know what publicity was I never heard of publicity until I got an office spot job at a company called Rogers and Cowan and then I realized it was everything I'd ever prepared to be but um so I got to work with those great stars, and that was in the 50s. And so Greer Garson, for those of you too young to remember, was uh, one of the, the great actresses of the 40s. She was the Meryl Streep at that time. Mm-hmm. But she had a kind of a grace that was actually greater than Meryl Streep's. Yeah. And my mother's favorite film of all time was a movie called Mrs. Miniver, uh-huh. which just presented a woman in the full blossom of grace. And that was her, she was her greatest star. So one time I'm driving my mom someplace and I had to stop at Greer's to drop something off. So I go to the door and I'm like, oh dear boy, so wonderful you're here, come on in. And I said, well Greer, my mom's in the car. And so my mother's sitting in the car and there's a tap at the window and suddenly there's Mrs. Miniver inviting her in for tea. And so it was the moment my mom knew what I did for a living. <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah. the dream right there. Because your parents will never yeah. quite understand. Well, it made up for all the awful things I did when I was a kid. <laughs> of course, of course. I love the idea that there's another, basically another whole book of stuff, though. And I like that you... Is there, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. The, the, next, the next book... But at least you've got it. I've got it. I, the next book... It sounds long. I think it's like 500... But I, th- I think I've told stories, enough stories. And um, so the next book is called uh, Win Win, The uh, Hollywood Rules of Persuasion. All right. Because uh, no, we're, we're, persuasions are very persuasive people. Sure. And everybody it has to be, it's like, it's like having to urinate. We all have to, you know, we all have to persuade. Yeah. And, uh, and why not be the best at it that you can? Well, Hollywood press agents are great at it. I mean, I know how to, you know, pick somebody's pocket mm-hmm. of their mind mm-hmm. and have them go away very happy. Yeah. yeah. And the whole point of, of Hollywood rules of persuasion is that the main objective is to gratify that person in a way that's substantial, that you don't change your, their mind, you change their mind for, the better, for their better. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what the next book will be. Wow, that sounds complex. But I do take uh, from it, my last chapter in it is a chapter from the, uh, from the second book. Okay. It's my first day in publicity was my best 
one of the best days of my life. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, so we were talking before we get started a little mm-hmm. bit about um, what the Milestone Comedy album, which is probably the first family. Yeah. The, I, the, I love that album. Yeah, Vaughn Mader, I think, created the, the awareness. I think what he created was the awareness that, what, what is the great thing? Why do we buy, I mean, I handle Barbara Streisand, you buy her album because she's brilliant. You buy it because you're going to want to hear it a hundred times. Of course, of course. And people and and people weren't really buying comedy because they didn't know that they would want to hear it a hundred times. Sure. And why not? We saw Sunday night. We saw Casablanca for I'm sure the fifty eighth time in our lives, yeah. and it was still great. And and Vaughn put out this album, and we were all caught up with the. With the Kennedy clan, that we were, you know, we were, we had royalty for the first time in our lives, and that he made fun of them, and we could still, you know, adulate them, but um, laugh at them, yeah. was amazing. And we lo- we listened to it time after time, sure. and then suddenly there was Bob Newhart, and you could hear hear the, each time you heard it, there was a different nuance that sure. you got out of it. Bill Cosby had the same thing. I have to say, Bill Cosby's uh, fall from grace really shook me because yeah. certainly at that time, and I was, I had Helen Reddy performing with him in um, in Tahoe, and so there was a private plane that took Helen up. Helen was one of the, the, the meaningful singers of the. 50s and 60s, Absolutely. 70s actually, and um, so this she and and Cosby were playing Harris in in Tahoe together, okay. and so the plane was taking her up there, picking him up in Vegas, taking him, and he was talking on the plane. He says, "You know, I I really hate I I love the performing, but I hate the fact that these people are going to be paying." Thirty-five dollars for that evening. Well, in seventy-two, thirty-five dollars was a lot of money, sure, sure. you know. And uh, I mean, we pay a thousand dollars to see Hamilton, but uh, he said, "You know what? Thirty-five thousand dollars just to that guy." He says, "That's two new pair of shoes. It's uh, you know, taking his family out for dinner." Mm-hmm. And he says, "What am I going to do? That's going to give him thirty-five dollars for?" And so from that, I was very taken by the guy. Sure. And I and I also handled his. Uh, he did a remake of the um, Groucho Marx show. You bet your life. Yes, right, right. And so I handled that. And I was really p- proud to be around him. Mm-hmm. And then when this came up, but I'd seen signs of it. Mm-hmm. it you know, I I never saw a sign with Harvey Weinstein. Uh-huh. I never saw that. I mean, he he was you know brutally determined to get his way and working for him was a great education because mm-hmm. he always had good ideas sure. and and you were always at the top of your farm yeah but that the was disappointing i can imagine I, yeah for sure do you have if we go back to the beginning of the com- what's your what's your first experience was your experience with comedy albums the same as everybody else's was you were buying them commercially or was it you got to see a lot of them before that anybody ever got to hear them i'm curious well, see, when Vaughn did that, that was, what was that, like, 62, I mean, I 3? Was, well, it was right before Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, so, okay, yeah. that's 63. It was two albums before he was yeah, assassinated. Yeah, so it was, like, 62, 63. Mm-hmm. So I was, like, 30 then. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, we, we used to go and see, 
we used to go to the comedy club, mm-hmm. and we really enjoyed that. Um, I don't think I was so much into into albums then, because an album then costs like eight dollars, and uh-huh. that was a lot of money for sure. us. Of the what? Eight dollars in nineteen sixty something money. What do you think? How much would that be? I guess about twenty five bucks. Yeah, okay. That's 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 steep. I mean, I right now I wouldn't, and I collect them. I still yeah. don't pay that much for them. Well, we lost all. We, I had a great collection because Rogers and Cowan handled Frank Sinatra and uh-huh. and all of the. Um, so so we had a lot of albums that we got of the great performers of the time, and we burned down in in ninety three. So. But you know, you live to li- you learn to live without. For sure, for sure. Are there some other uh, specifically? So you you write you. There's a whole chapter about the albums in your book. Is there some, yeah. some stuff stand out that maybe maybe some of my younger listeners might not even know about? I mean, we talk about a little bit of everything with people, and you'd be surprised who knows about what. But I'm I'm wondering if there are any albums that stand out to you or artists that stand out to you. That maybe I'm, try- I'm trying to I'm trying to think which is the one. That, you know, there were. The comedians there, television was very rich, and, and at exactly the right time. So the um, the Dick Shawns and the Orson Beans and the Gary Moores and there were uh, George Goble. They all came up at that time. And um, strangely enough, I think the two greatest of those comedians were Harvey Corman and Carol Burnett's other guy. Oh yeah. Uh, oh my God. Tim Conway, Tim Conway, Tim. I think Tim Conway, and um, I think no, um, Santa Barbara. He's everybody thinks he's the greatest comedian of all time. He was. I'm losing it. Do I have it here? Jonathan Winters. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I think they were probably the two most inspired comedians Mm -hmm. of the time. Uh, Harvey Moore is a visual comedian. Yes, right. I can see why he didn't have that. But um, it was great. And then I was able to, in handling people like, um, of course, Leachman, I was very much a part of the of the Mel, Mel uh, Brooks group. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then Car- and Carl Reiner became one of the really significant people in my life. And mm-hmm. and I, I, I think... In many ways, um, I think in many ways, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner gave birth to the comedy on vinyl. For sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think they preceded Von Meter. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I still love most of those. Still hold up sober. I mean, they're two. Like, if you're to nail down who my two biggest heroes are, it's probably the two of them. Yeah. And not just because, because uh, I discovered a lot of their stuff in reverse. Because when I was yeah. a kid, their albums were not accessible to me. But then. Eventually, I find all the 2,000-year-old man, and just, ah, God, they're just so brilliant. Great. Well, I mean, one of the, the, my life is full of so many treasures because I got to meet these people, and and what the book is about is the kind of human ways that I saw them that nobody else, and there there was a very, there was a really good uh, uh, journalist on Variety, a guy named Dale Olson, Mm -hmm. and I always said to him, come on over to publicity, uh, uh, you're going to get you you'll you'll like it. You you you'll be very good at it. Mm-hmm. He was very into stars, and uh, he said, "Well, why would I want to do that all my life? I wanted to be a, a reporter for Variety, and now I'm doing what I want to do." I said, "Well, 
you'll make more money. And he says, I don't care about that. Give me another reason. I said, well, as a journalist, you learn these people from the outside in. As a press agent, I learn them from the inside out. Sure. And he came over. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and had a really great life. And, and he enjoyed the... I mean, I've never taken a photo with a client. Mm-hmm. Like, probably that's not true, but, <laughs> but but I made a point of not taking photos with clients because mm-hmm. I thought it broke down uh, the certain objectivity that I had to have. I get that, yeah. But... What happened was with Carl, I really got to know Carl through my writing. I, I've done a number of films and uh, television, wrote television show, uh, movies and, t- mm-hmm. and movies. And so one of them that sold a, a hundred times was called Lost in August. And it went through it, um, Eli Landau, who did um, The Iceman Cometh and uh, Hedda and all these really distinguished films. Love that script, and so he was going to do it. We went through with a bunch of directors. Suddenly, Carl is on the script with me, and I was so excited because I'm going to get to work on a script with Carl, and I'm going to hear all these funny things that he's going to bring to it. <clears throat> and he didn't really. And um, and so I, I, I saw he was always making notes, and he would write T-T-A, or he'd write... Um, OTN, TTTA or OTN. So finally I said, what, do you, what is that? Well, you're making me crazy with that. He says, OTN is on the nose. Okay. The audience could have written that line and probably already wrote it before you <laughs> put it on them. Okay. And I said, what's TTTN? He says, you're talking to the audience. <clears throat> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, your characters have to talk to each other. Now, the main thing that you do in evolving narrative is you have to give story background. You have to give information to the audience. And so you have to have very clever dialogue in which you can do it. But if you ever say, to the, if you ever say, have a character say, you know, we agreed that if I did that, you would do this. He said, nobody ever says that. You're telling the audience what something, and they know it's a cheesy way out that you just took. And it was it was great, and uh, and just being around Carl, he was just so kind, and uh, his wife um, was one of the greatest Blot singers I've ever heard, really? uh, nightclub singers. She she was a chanteuse. Mm-hmm. He, she was eight years older than he. Uh-huh. So when I got to know her, she was already well in her seventies. At a certain point during one of the recessions when my company could have used another client, uh, he called and he says, I want you to do something on Estelle for me. And I come over there and he plays. He says, she has a new album and I want to do the publicity because she's 92 uh-huh. in an album. And he played the album for me. It was very nice. It didn't have the perfection she had before. Sure. And so I said, Carl, I'm not going to do this. He said, why? I said, well, the, the people would think this was as good as she could sing. She was brilliant. Sure, you, sure. You, you don't don't do that to her, and uh, he was really hurt. And so, so he said, "Well, how are you? You aren't anything new in your life?" I said, "Well, I'm teaching myself piano." So he says, "Well, play for me." I said, "Well, I can't play for you. I can't play in front of somebody." He says, "No, play for me." So I sit down and very haltingly do something, and he says, "He says." 
I like it. He says, it's very, very restful. I said, you're kidding. He says, yes, I can take little naps while you're looking for the next chord. <laughs> but that was his humor. It was always, it was always humane. So, and I think that's why, I really think they gave comedy albums a rocket ride. For sure. 2,000-year-old man. And it's so many to follow, too. They did so many wonderful albums yeah. after that. And it, it, what's interesting is there weren't that many other people doing, at least at the time, doing that much. Actually, you might know better than I would. Mm-hmm. How They're obviously a little rehearsed, but I, what level of improv are we listening to in the albums? Do you know? Like, some of them seem re- a little rehearsed, like they maybe they definitely got a bit that they're going to do, but the rest of it seems like they're just going for it. I would think that it would be 80-20. Yeah. I think 80% was written, okay. and then if a moment came up, then they know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Did they discover it impro- in improv, though? Did they, do you know, uh, in terms of like... You know, I never, I, I was never party to their their working habits, but I handled Peter Usnoff. I don't know uh, if Peter did A albums, did he? He did a few, yeah, and they're wonderful. I'm funny, funny enough. I did. I don't even. I'm not familiar with them. But weird. Peter, I learned something from Peter. Uh, I mean, I learned something from every client. And the, the the book is a really good learning experience because you get to learn all the things that I got to learn. Course, yeah. And so one time, Peter was um, he had a new book out, and uh, I had seven interviews in a row. And so at a certain point, uh, he did the first one. And I. I said, uh, I'm sorry, I, um, I'm sorry, I'm doing this to you and doing seven interviews in a row. He says, No, no. He says, I love interviews. Really? Why? He says, I learned what I think. Huh. And and he was right. He said, When people ask you a question that you've never addressed, you have to come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, Boy, I, I used it all my life because I. When I had clients who didn't know how to do interviews, I told them that, sure. and then they reacted with interest. So, but the interesting thing was that we did the seven interviews. He gave the same interview seven times. Of course, of course. He didn't do what he told me he was going to do, but I think he he had picked up that it worked the first time, and so. I mean, say something like, I once said, and I must agree with myself. <laughs> well, that was in every interview. Sure. But why not? He's yeah. entitled to it. It's intellectual property. Well, of course. And his albums actually kind of have, he, he does have an album that was at the BBC that's a series of interviews where they ask, they ask him to tell a story, but the stories are just voice, 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 mm-hmm. voice, back and forth, back and forth. And they're brilliant. And I don't know how improvised they are or not, but they, it doesn't matter. They're just so wonderful to listen to. Very dynamic album. Well, I saw a scene that he improvised in Spartacus. Remember uh-huh. Spartacus? Yeah. So there's a scene. He's, he runs a school for a training facility for gladiators. And Laurence Olivier is a big uh, uh, political figure in the Roman Empire. And he comes and he's purchasing um, gladiators. And there's a scene at the end with whatever they were talking about. And... Olivier, they were st- they're trying to steal the scene from each other. Uh-huh. And so Peter gives a line, and Olivier gives his line, but he gives it inflections that are somewhat drawn out. And, and uh, then Peter is responding with a reflection that is drawn out. And uh, Stanley Kubik is watching this, and he knows 
This isn't with the scene he's going he's to use. So he lets it go on. And then he says, okay, guys, we've had our fun. Let's do the scene. That's just the like you can tell in listening to these very facetious that he clearly like had the, had the he liked his friends yeah. people. I love that so much. And, For, they, and and they knew that it wasn't the scene. Once they got it was a game they were playing. But Peter was very competitive, and we always we had games that we'd play, going to interviews. You know, you're driving with Alan Arkin to an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to talk about something on the way there. And Alan, the, the only fun with Alan was trying to make him laugh because uh-huh. he's, he's very doer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's his comic per, persona. Sure. And so one time we're driving someplace and he said, uh, and I said to him, did you ever have a, another press agent? He said, yes, I had so-and-so. I said, well, he's pretty good. Why did you let him go? He says, he never shut up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, You'd say he'd just talk and talk and it'd go on and on and on. You know what I mean? I said I have nothing to say on the subject. <laughs> there was no response, and about a block later, he went. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so good. Oh, that's the kind of reaction you want. Did you did you have any other? Were there other albums that you were when you, when you started actually getting into albums and being interested in them? What's the kind of stuff that you were buying? Were you well, we of- were. You know, you were introduced to the album, but there, there were so many places that these people could do, that you encountered these people on TV. You know, sure. the, the, the Maury Amsterdams, yes. and the, they, were, they were constantly on, and you had a chance to develop a taste for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but, but the ones, it was Dick Gregory and Godfrey... Godfrey Cambridge. Uh-huh. Godfrey Cambridge really took us because it was just, that was the early 60s mm-hmm. and uh, mid 60s maybe, when civil rights was really coming into view. And we were starting to, for the first time, <clears throat> really acknowledge how we had enabled the, the, you know, the oppression of sure. people. And so uh, Godfrey Cambridge, who was very angry, um, would would strike us as somebody that we were sort of obliged when he was his humor was great but you felt obliged to laugh with him of these things so because that's a way of asserting civil rights yeah. and i remember one time we were in vegas with somebody else and um and we bumped into godfrey cambridge and we were telling how much it meant to us and i saw how he resented he thought we were that we were Pretending to be liberals. Okay. You know? Okay. I mean, I mean, he was looking for that because you know, how could we feel that because our skin was white? Sure, sure. I mean, I guess you know, if, if that's your, if that is absolutely your worldview and your point of view is, is absolutely to change. But but, but that anger was part of his comedy. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting that that's that's it, it was genuinely deep rooted in who he was. And we would go to the. It was a great time for the comedy clubs, and and a lot of those people came out of it. They would get albums because of the, and we were we really liked what's his name, um, Dice Clay. Oh yeah, yeah, Dice sure, Clay. Dice Clay. Yeah, yeah. And um, and you went there for the routines, but you really went there for the ad libs mm-hmm. and uh, and the heckles. And um, I remember one time we were at some club, and he and he was very abrasive, and so he could make people angry. And so some guy really had some 
angry heckle, and he says, what are you doing after the show? He says, I'm fucking your brother. And he says, oh, my God, I just heckled myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Did you, are you, were you present for the recording of any albums? Do you know no, I, actually, I don't think it was ever asked to be because mm-hmm. it wasn't a, a good thing. You know, it, when you're when you're doing a club act, then the audience response is very important. Sure. I mean, I, I, even today, I, I can't stand a laugh track. A, a laugh track just seems so phony to me. Hard, yeah. But, um, and even the ones, because I've covered the taping of probably 500 television comedy sure. half hours. We handled... Roseanne and Happy Days, and mm-hmm. we handled you know great many of those shows. And um, although with Roseanne it was interesting because um, Carsey Werner thought we could add a lot to the uh, to it. It was a very distinguished show, but it was people were not they accepted that it was popularity, but they didn't really understand it was really helping redefine television. Absolutely, I mean they they went took up. TV and comedy into areas that were even all in the family wasn't doing. For sure, yeah. And but they never told her that I was on the show because they knew that she would get me fired. <laughs> and I handled the show I think three or four years. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, there was one show where Howard Hessman and Fred Willard were getting married. It was the first mm-hmm. gay marriage on a television yes. show. And so I had a lot of media there. And so after, uh, after the taping, or maybe re- after rehearsal, I had entertainment tonight there mm-hmm. to do an interview with the two guys. And so I took them out to be, I saw some trailer was sort of far away. We went over by that. And, um, and so we were doing the, the interview, and suddenly Roseanne comes out of the trailer. They just moved her trailer. Oh. And I knew this was trouble. And she says, what the hell is going on here and all that? And I answered, and she says, and who the hell are you anyway? Uh, I was gone the next day. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> they were right. The second she knew I was on, it was gone. <laughs> That's so funny. I guess, I guess it makes sense that you wouldn't be there for any comedy album. They want, they want like a genuine laugh. They want, to, they want to make sure there's nobody invested in the success of it. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's dangerous to have people who are paid yeah. to be appreciators it's a different kind of a laugh. Yeah, I, I, I've been a paid laugher on sitcoms before, and it's a weird experience. It's a very well. Weird I was experience. I was a laugher when I was a kid. Uh-huh. When I f- we first came to Hollywood, I was forty five. Uh-huh. I wanted to be in show business. I didn't have any skills. I was a. I knew I was going to be a writer, mm-hmm. but um, I went up in those days. It was the the great comedians were on radio. Yeah, and and America's common denominator entertainment was radio and and they were all done within like two blocks of each other uh the cbs was on sunset and gower nbc was on sunset and vine abc was down a couple of blocks and um and so i would go up there and wanting to go into the shows you couldn't because you had to be 14 i was 11 i was really little Mm -hmm. and i see this kid and he's in line I went over, I said, you're no more 11 than I am. And he said, no. He said, I said, well, how are you going in? He says, well, these shows are all produced by the ad agencies. They didn't buy ads. They produced the shows. 
And he said, you can get, if you go over to the Taft building where most of the ad agencies were, mm-hmm. um, you can get tickets that say agency on the back, and you can go in to see it, if the agency ticket if you're wearing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went over there, and then I'd cultivate, you know, there were these, all these 22-year-old young women at the desk and everything. I knew how to charm them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't talk to a 12-year-old girl, <laughs> but I knew how to charm anybody who was older. And I got all these tickets. Yeah. And so I would go. And so one time, uh, one of the girls said, would it, "Do you do things on? Can you do something on Saturday morning early?" I said, "Sure." She said, "Well, Billy Burke has her show, her Saturday show. It's taped at eight o'clock here, so it's heard in the East Coast at eleven o'clock, oh. and then it's rebroadcast here at eleven o'clock." And I said, oh, no, I'd like to do it. So it wasn't a room much bigger than a classroom, a little classroom. And they had like 20, 15, 20 chairs, card card table chairs. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, she would come out and they had this little stage and the microphones were there. And so I started going there because not only did you get to hear it, but it was very personal and she would give coffee and cookies afterwards or for me chocolate and um and I was there every Saturday wow. and so my mother said where are you going every Saturday I said well um I I go up to see the, the taping of the show because my friend Billy Burke has a show and she needs people at the audience and she says Billy Burke is very famous she was married to uh um, Ziegfeld, Flo Ziegfeld mm-hmm. she was a very big star and you don't know her and I said mom I do she's, she's my friend she said why would she be your friend I said they like my laugh <laughs> I, I, I cultivated a laugh that's her record oh and so, so she said no you're not telling the truth and I said so I get my dad to drive us both up at 7.30 on the Saturday and we're there and we're sitting there at the back and then Billy Burke comes out, and then she nods to the audience, and then she nods to me and waves, and my mother looks behind to see who she's waving at. There's nobody behind <laughs> us. So then she finally got it. That it, That's so good. But well, they, they, they told me, they, I like, we like your laugh. That's so great. I love it. What year was her, was her show on? What years? Well, that, I think I only did that the year of uh, 1945, summer of 45. Okay. Okay. There've got to be recordings of it, right? Mm-hmm. There've got to be recordings somewhere of that. Of those shows? Yeah. Now I want to hear. Now I've got to see if I can peg and see which one. Well, they were sweet, but I would go to Armis Brooks and uh, sure. Ozzie and Harriet and all those things. And then and then I'd run up on the stage for Lux Radio Theater. I'd run up on the stage after Miss Rogers, may I have your script? Mr. Milan, may I have your script? <laughs> I love it. And I always did it to... Uh, the only one who wasn't happy about it, I thought that he really liked me, was Lionel Barrymore. Mm-hmm. He had a show called Mirror of the Town. And every show, I'd run up there and ask for his script. And um, and he would just give it to me sort of gruffly. And then one time he turned to me and looked at me and he said, oh, it's you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was a treasure. Of I mean, course. Do you still have those? Do you- yeah, I had all those scripts. And when I went to Europe... I had some of the earliest television scripts. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went to Europe, I had them all par- put in the garage, and my mom gave them away for a paper drive. Oh, no. Oh, no. You know, they, they would have destroyed somewhere else. Sure. Well, 
What's uh, I know that we're a little off topic off of comedy mm-hmm. albums, but I'm definitely curious. What's the first show you worked on? What t- what's the first TV show you worked on at all? That I worked on at all. If you can remember it. I mean, because well, it sounds like you've done so much. Well, the first one that I was sort of the unit person on was Jane Wyman mm-hmm. Theater, and uh, which was really awesome. It was shortly after she did uh, Johnny Belinda, and you know, she was, a, you know, but she was very powerful. Uh, one time there was some noise on the uh, set, some voice, and she didn't do anything. But at the end of the of the take, she said, um, "I just want your attention and one thing. I would like the only voice that are heard on the sets in a shoot in a, in a take would be those of the actors in front of the camera." Mm-hmm. And boy, there was silence after yes, that. I but I handled all the Dick, Dick Powell. Started started anthology mm-hmm. television with a, a four star theater, mm-hmm. and so I got to work on that. He was actually the nicest man ever. Really? <laughs> oh, he was just a decent guy, and a lovely man. And um, but you're working with Dick Powell, Charles Boyer, David Niven, wow. Ida Lupino. Oh Barbara Stanwyck was a lot of on a lot of our Zane Gray theater half hour westerns. Mm-hmm. It was great. Oh, see, uh, this just makes me think of, I mean, comparatively, it's nothing, but when I first moved out here just doing extra work, that was my favorite thing, even if it was on a bad show. I just yeah. loved being on those old sets. Well, yeah. I, I would do that, too, except we weren't extras. I was a, a waiver. Uh-huh. A waiver got $5 a day on lunch. Okay. And, but we went on um, on Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um I, those days I had hair and it was curly, mm-hmm. so they pulled me out of the line where we were standing to get our costumes, and it was the Ides of March scene, mm-hmm. and um, and they needed a, a curly head, so they put curls on in front of me, and I was standing right next to the to the soothsayer, uh-huh. and 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 suddenly there's Marlon Brando and uh, James Mason. I mean, it was just astonishing. That's and they all became my friends later because I handled James Mason. I worked with Gilgood. I worked with Eddie O'Brien. Became a close friend. Mm-hmm. Was, what, what time did you work with Gilgood? It was really strange. When I first went into my own business, I left Rogers and Cowan and um, told Warren Cowan that I was leaving. And he says, who are you planning to talk to, to take? And I said, well, you know, I was going to tell my, you know, Candy Bergen and... Peter Yusnoff that I'm leaving and he says you know I think it would be very rude for you to leave with some of our clients and I agree with him actually and so I didn't have anything when we started and a friend of mine uh, Leslie Stevens one of the great writers for television back to Playhouse 90 um, had a new show at Warner Brothers it was starred um, Hugh O'Brien and it starred uh, John Gilgood Mm -hmm. and so I got to work with John Gilgood on that you know, he actually appears. I was surprised because, again, I, I've been. I tried at the beginning of this year to listen to a comedy album a day. It mm-hmm. didn't work out because it's more more work than you think. But John Gilgood appears on at least one comedy album. Really? Yes, from years ago. And it, but it was a series of comedic scenes from plays that were from the 18th century. So they're very wow. dry and very boring. Yeah. But immediately, even though I know, because I grew up with John Gilgood and Arthur, 
uh, I immediately still could spot his voice as a young man. Yeah. Still, like, the greatest thing to listen to. Beautiful book. Yeah. Well, I think James Mason was the most interesting voice for me. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't classic because it was very high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas Burton, I mean, I work with Richard Burton. Mm-hmm. I work with all the... I, I think actually the most beautiful voice, one of my closest friends was Lawrence Harvey. Oh. And he did an album... This was vinyl, but it wasn't comedy. Sure. It's called This Is My Beloved. Mm-hmm. And not Hubert Law's uh, oh, great jazz pianist. The music is just terrible. I can't think of his name. But um, this Larry re- reading this poem, This this Is My Beloved. Um, yeah. I mean, if you ever want a, a girl to fall in love with you, yeah. <laughs> you play this album for her. I feel like you've seen it. I feel like mm-hmm. in, in Hunting... For old albums, I might have seen it. Now I'm going to seek well, it if you ever can buy it, yeah, I would buy it. But Larry was really dear. But I, but he invited me to a recording. He was doing it one Saturday. He said, "What are you doing?" Called up, washing my dad's car. Be in front of your house. I'm picking you up in 20 minutes. You're coming with me. Well, I have a busy day. He said, "No, you're coming with me." <laughs> so he drive up to uh, the, the old CBS or where, where Billy Burke was the CBS radio studios on uh, Sunset and Gower and I walk in and there's this little man with a mustache and Larry is doing an oratorio of some musical performance and he brings me over and he says um, he introduces me to uh, Stravinsky Interested me to Stravinsky. Out of nowhere, it doesn't prepare you for no, it. No, was, he was recording Stravinsky's Noah and the Flood. Wow. He and Sebastian Cabot. Really? And, oh, uh, and it was really great. And then I learned a lesson from Stravinsky. I'm always looking for what lesson I'm going to learn. Sure. And so Larry, afterwards, he says, Larry, he says, Mr. Harvey, that was very good. And Larry says, Maestro, I can do better. And he says, Mr. Harvey, good enough is good enough. Mm-hmm. It's a very important lesson to, le- to it is. learn. It is. Perfection is uh, impossible, <laughs> I think. You can find perfection in something you admire, but yeah. shooting for perfection yourself, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Well, I find that you very often overdo it. I'm, I'm redoing this second book now because mm-hmm. I find that there are some places where I just kept it in because I like the writing. Okay, yeah. And... and that's for, it's very seductive, but it's really counterproductive. For sure, for sure. If okay, so uh, normally towards the end of an episode, I'm always I always ask, well, why would you recommend this album? Well, we talked about a bunch of different things. Is there one particular album you think people should seek out if they're not familiar with with some of the original classics of this golden age? I think because of because basically Stan Freeberg didn't do stand up; he did narrative. Mm-hmm comedy and I think um, Stan Freeberg modestly presents the history of the United States yeah I would go for that it's because... beautiful it's beautiful we talked about it on the show before those are some pretty good episodes you definitely okay, but just that he evoked like the it was the um, what do you call it the three the pipe and the drum mm-hmm. what, what, what is that called it's the what you're asking the wrong okay so he's um <laughs> With, with the, that painting of the, the, the oh guy yes with yes the, of course uh, Washington Crossing the Bell no not, not no. that one I'm an idiot okay. no no, no but the, 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 the and so they they have that going and the oh. guy 
uh, and the guy says, uh, one of the guys has a, a, a bandage over his eye, mm-hmm. and the other guy says, watch where you go, and he says, and the bandage is slipping on my eye. <laughs> you know, actually, it's interesting you mentioned that one, because we talked about that a bit, and we talked about First Family, there's only one guy left who's on both of those, and that's Chuck McCann, who's a guy I desperately want to get on this podcast at some point. So Chuck McCann, if you're out there, please come on. You're on two of the best comedy albums of all time. Even though he's doing like side voices and stuff, Chuck McCann is like, the ultimate guy. Okay, I'm gonna have to tell me what the albums are. Uh, yeah, he's on First Family and on the. History. Oh, he was on those. He's on both of, both oh, you're of, kidding! He's the only person left alive from both of them. Wow. Yeah, because June Foray passed away just a few months ago, so she was the other person who yeah. left. And yeah. Well, I'm losing a lot of my people now. Uh, <clears throat> I had a un, not consecutive, but in, in three weekends, I had to do Marty Lando's. Uh, not on top. Um, what do you call it? Uh, obituary. Obituary. Sure. The, you know, words that I, that exact pain for me. I can never for remember. Sure. For sure. And uh, then two weeks later, I spent the Sunday writing Joe Bologna's. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but uh, I'm gonna put you with uh, with Renee Taylor because I don't yeah. think they did any albums though. No, but Renee Taylor's voice is on one of my favorites of all time because she's in the producers. Her voice yeah. is in is in one one of the songs. She's in it, so just short period, but distinct voice, obviously. Well, I got to a lot to do a lot with um, Mel because of uh, because of uh, Chloris, mm-hmm. and so one time they were shooting. Um, actually, strangely, my favorite uh, Mel Brooks film. No, my favorite Mel Brooks film is um, To Be or Not to Be. Uh-huh. But uh, the other is because each of them had really strong narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, the other was um, high anxiety. Yeah, so so, uh, so I went out there one time to twentieth for lunch with Cloris, and um, and so Cloris and I are having lunch, and, and Mel joins us at the table, and she's um, Frau Blucher, mm-hmm. and, uh, and oh no no in, in that one she sure, was uh, she, uh, she, the nurse, yes. and um, and so she said. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel my tit. And I said, what are you talking about? We're in the commissary at, uh, at, at, at 20th. And she says, no, you have to feel her tit. And Mel says, feel her tit, goddammit. And I did, and it was, I said, it's steel. She says, yeah, I have steel tits in this film. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my God. I love that every story about her seems to be true. Like, just the most irreverent. She's also a hero of mine. Like, just the most irreverent brilliant, transformative comedic actress just about of all time. Well, the first time I met her, she was naked. Really? No, her, her ex-husband hired me to <clears throat> do a campaign on her for um, the last picture show. Oh, okay. And um, I thought it was a pretty good campaign because she won the Oscar for mm-hmm. it. But, um, so it, but I had never met her. Although, I, I think I maybe I did because we handled... Um, Kiss Me Deadly mm-hmm. at Rogers and Cowan. And I think I did an interview with her. She was gorgeous mm-hmm. at that time. That was 15 years before that. Okay, okay. And um, no, so I come to her house and her daughter opens the door. I said, I'm taking your mom to the first screening, the big screening of uh, Last Picture Show. And so she says, my mom's in the shower. It was the shower right by the door. And she says, mom, the man says, she says, tell him to wait in the living room. I go in the living room, sitting in this sort of dark living room. Then I hear footsteps, and she pads in, 
stark naked and goes to the piano and starts playing the <laughs> piano. And so I'm looking the other way and I go, ahem, ahem. I actually said ahem. And she's, oh, uh, I didn't know you were there. Oh, okay, I'll be right there. I said, we're very, very late. <laughs> oh, my God, that's phenomenal. But, uh, but she was just, she was remarkable. And, yeah. and so, so, so she, I had Jean Hackman and she both won the Academy Award the same night. Oh, okay. So beforehand, I'd had Jean... No, uh, her award came on fairly early. It was supporting actress, mm-hmm. and um, and I guess Gene presented it, mm-hmm. and um, and he says it's Cloris Leachman for last picture show. Cloris Leachman, which is remarkable because Eileen Brennan was in. It was nominated for that, mm-hmm. and Cloris stands up, and then she comes in, and I go backstage and. I'm taking her and Jean around after the, the award presentation. We go up to the media, and she said, I'm so unhappy. I'm so unhappy. I said, Gloria, you just won the Academy Award. I'm happy. I had history in my hands, and I lost it. I lost it. Jean's looking at her, and I said, you just won the Oscar. She's, no, I had it all planned out. They were going to say, and the award goes to Anne Margaret for carnal knowledge, and then Anne would stand up and be bewildered, and she'd start down the aisle, and then I would throw myself around her feet, screaming, "No, no, you can't! It's mine! It's mine!" Oh my God! That's she was a, right. That's a pure comedian. But she would have lived forever. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Oh, that's beautiful. And four four months later, I asked one an actor who won the, who were the four actors. The person can tell me it was Cloris. <laughs> she didn't know. Of course. Nobody remembers four months later who won the award. Right. Well, you, you remember the lady who accepted the Oscar for Marlon Brando. I, I was there. Know? Were you? That yeah, I had crazy. to take her off because I had Roger Moore was presenting it. Uh-huh. Roger was a client, and so we would divide up who took. You oh, know, okay, if sure. you knew somebody, it was easier because you, you did, they would follow you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he starts off the story. Uh, if if people want to go to, I have a blog on uh, Huff Post, and this is really well written on that. It was I, I wrote it when Roger died, mm-hmm. but um, he walks off, and I said, Roger, I I don't think I think you should go back to your seat. There's no point in your coming up, even for the photos. This is a standalone. Mm-hmm. He says, No, you're absolutely right. I'll go back. At which point, and I start taking her to the elevator to go up to where the media lines are. And uh, some six foot five security guy runs over and he says, Where are you taking her? And I said, uh, Well, she has to go up and go through the media. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, No, no, she has to stay here. I said, Please, this is a moment that has to be handled very well. Let me take her sure. there and, and, and subtract her from the rest of the show. Let the show go on. Mm-hmm. No, he says, All of the, all of the uh, winners are supposed to be on stage at the end. Uh, it's a tribute to John, John Ford, and everybody's going to sing "God Bless America." I said, "Did you not hear what she said up there?" I said, "John Ford is the greatest director, the most humane director of all time. He killed more Indians than George Custer." And please let me take her up there. And uh, at which point, somebody knocked a flat over, and he starts to go there, and 
uh, Roger gives me a quick move of the hand, and I start running to the elevator with her. And um, the guy comes in, he's yelling, and he says, wait, wait. And so Roger got in his way, and they're doing like the samba in the middle of the stage. And Roger's keeping him oh while God. I get her up there. And he's yelling, where are you taking that Indian? Uh, okay, let's make sure people can find your, your work. So uh, your book, okay. any, your blog, whatever. Okay, well, the book is the book is on, uh, it's, it's called Star Flacker Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. You just go to Star Flacker, Amazon, it'll take you there. Mm-hmm. And um, and I tra- it's, it was $23, which I thought was an okay price for 670 pages. Absolutely. But uh, I wanted to lower it, and so I went to them, and I said, I want to lower it. He said, he said, well, it's so thick, they, all we can afford to lower it to is $22.03. Oh so that's the price now, because they can't afford to make any money oh, of off it. But it's, it's, it's not a book that you will read over a weekend. It's, uh, you put it by your bed, or you put it by the toilet. You can read it, you know, five pages at a time, and it's fun. Well, it's funny. Every page is funny. But not because of maybe these people were, you know, wonderfully, wonderfully original. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. Yeah. And then the ones you wouldn't expect. Gene Hackman's one of the funniest people. Really? That's Paul Newman was very funny. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were great people. I really appreciate you doing this. This is a, this oh, is a, it was a pleasure. A lot of fun. So people, please, please read Star Trek. Well, I, have, I actually have good. that one chapter in it called The Decade of Great Comedy. Yes, there's, uh, another, there's another way to read Storytellers. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's some of the people. Um, George Carlin, Mark Saul, Godfrey Cambridge, Dick Gregory, uh, Myron Cohn, Arson Bean, Dick Sean, Jonathan Winters, Bill Cosby, Don Rickles, Richard Pryor. Oh my God, I, well, I handled a lot of them. We Thank just you. talked about Rickles for the first time a couple weeks ago. Weirdly. After yeah. seven years of this podcast, for the first time, Don Rickles You're kidding. Out. It's very weird to me. It doesn't make sense. Well, I had another thing with him in Vegas with my wife because we went. He was he, Don Rickles was a lounge show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we went to the lounge. And my wife in those days was 60s. And women wore this bouffant hairdo. Mm-hmm. And so my wife had that. She was a blonde. and um, And so he says... Ladies and gentlemen, we got a celebrity in my audience. Ladies and gentlemen, gorgeous George. And, uh, and he says, stand up, stand up. And she stands up. She says, no, I'm t- afraid you're terribly mistaken. I am not this Mrs. George. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> well, uh, thank you again for doing this. Oh, this my pleasure. so much fun. Um, well, I'm, t- I'm happy there are people that have this as a passion. Me too. Uh, I'm glad that people listen. Well, it's rewarding, and it, it was, you know, the some of these people were very educational. Mm-hmm. Mort Saul taught us a lot about politics. Absolutely. Again, Mort Saul only for the first time came up this year. Very weird. Very really? weird after seven years. But finally, we're getting to cover some of the stuff that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Um, I, but I, I recommend you guys listen to all the stuff we've talked about. I took, I took somebody on his show one time. Georgie Jessel. I don't uh-huh. know, did Georgie ever do an t- uh, yes, album? Yes, I do have an album of his. It's weird because it's all laugh track. So really? it doesn't sound great. So you can't appreciate his stuff for what it is. He had a talk show. Uh-huh. And I took, there's a great actress named Nina Fosh. Mm-hmm. For, for some orientation, she's the older woman who's 
supporting Jean Kelly in American Palace, okay, okay. American Paris, and uh, but she was one of the great actresses and teachers. So I take her to the show, and we're standing to, to say goodbye to him. And there was a young comedian was on the show, and he was in front of us, thanking uh, George Jessel. And Jessel said, he "said you know you're a very funny comedian. I want to point something out to you." Um, you know that joke that you did about the guy with one leg? And, and he said, got a good laugh. He says, but you know, somewhere there's a guy with a wooden leg and you broke his heart mm-hmm. and you can only break so many hearts. That's, that's good stuff. And so <laughs> we're walking out and Nina said, God, I'm glad we came tonight. Yeah. She said, I'm so happy I heard that. That's amazing. That's so perfect. Uh, and I'd love to hear it in his voice. But... Um, well, uh, this has been so much fun. Please go buy the book. Listen to all these albums that we've talked about. And as I say every week, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune into the new Stand Up channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. 